Welcome to the All Bases Covered podcast with me, Rob Smith. And my latest conversation is with Evan Bowen-Jones, who's the CEO of the Kent Wildlife Trust. Now, we recorded it at the Trust HQ at Thailand Barn near Maidstone in a slightly echoey room on the 7th of November 2022. It's an extensive ramble of a conversation, starting with the fact that global leaders are gathering for COP27 in Egypt to talk about climate change, amid concerns it may already be too late for the world to reduce CO2 emissions enough to stay within the 1.5 degree global warming limit. We may even pass it in the next decade, let alone by 2050. We talk about wilding and rewilding and the difference between the two, and about the release of wild bison into the Bleen woodland near Canterbury, And Evan talks about the need for government regulation and public subsidy to help landowners and farmers engage in good countryside management, as well as food production, so that marginal land isn't needlessly ploughed up or set to pasture for little, if any, gain to humanity, but with serious consequences for wildlife. And he talks about how he was inspired to become a conservationist after watching David Attenborough's Life on Earth as a child, and talks about being fortunate enough to have spoken with the great man on several occasions. And then we both have a bit of a fanboy moment over meeting David Attenborough, strong candidate for greatest living human, I'd say. Now, despite the huge concerns over the current state of the environment, Evan remains optimistic for the future and hopeful that with enough efforts now, Kent, and indeed the UK, will have significantly more wildlife in it in 50 years' time than we have today which I find to be really heartening. I hope you enjoy our conversation. COP27 is just underway at the moment. Yes. So a whole bunch of world leaders Mm -hmm. have flown to a massively expensive tourist resort in Egypt. It's always a thing to do when you need to work out the fate of the planet. Yes. (laughs) So... Where are we at at the moment? How do you? What, what's your baseline feeling? Um, well, I was listening to a debate on Radio Jaseka actually, which I think is quite pertinent, and it was, is one point five dead or not? Mm-hmm. And um, I think the the balance of opinion probably chimes with mine, which is that you've got to have these political targets. It's technically feasible to achieve, you know, to hold at one point five degrees, but the speed at which we are delivering anything is way off. So actually, I mean, the trajectory, as you know, is, is actually more like 3.5 degrees, mm. which is terrifying because that's proper climate breakdown. Do you think that the average per- person on the street understands what you're talking about when you talk Probably about 1.5 and 3.5? Probably not. I, th- I think actually the, the other useful, useful thing about 1.5 is, if you like, it's developed into common parlance for something that we could get away with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the... The kind of target really uh, and the trajectory only provides 50% assurance that we'll only ever actually limit ourselves to 1.5. Anyway, there's always all, all these kind of statistical probability stuff built in, mm. which is hugely complicated. I don't fully understand myself, and I've read half of it. And um, and the bottom line is that you know we need to take much more action faster now if we're to prevent our climate from becoming so unstable that it's effectively unsafe for the human population species as a whole. So, yes. I mean, it's quite scary when we start talking about this. So 1.5 is one and a half degrees above 
the pre-industrial era yes. average, yeah. isn't it? Exactly. And we're, I think, about 1.1 at the moment. Yeah, is we've that got right? there incredibly fast. And there was a model the other day which said we might get to actual 1.5 within a decade, 15 years. Mm. So that's way ahead of 2050. And 2050 is a date that's been set for us all to be, you know, carbon neutral, net zero, all these things, again, which are a bit fuzzy. But effectively, you know, putting out a lot less greenhouse gases than we put out now and making the, the climate supposedly stable at that 1.5 degree increase again. And given the fact that I seem to remember about 10 years ago, scary doom-laden warnings that we might have summers in the UK reaching 40 degrees by 2050. Yeah. We've just had one. Exactly. And that's going to become more common. Yes. Yeah. So I'll come back to my question. Mm. What's your sort of baseline <laughs> feeling at the moment? Well, I guess if you work in conservation, you have to be a bit of an optimist. So I live, I, live, I, I personally am one of those people, I live in two realities. One of my realities is, geez, we're in a lot of trouble. And the other reality is that, you know, we've got all the tools at our disposal now to actually do this. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was just hearing person say on the radio, that from the physics, we can still do this. It's about the political will and just getting going now. And so other arguments have to be put to the side. And what I would call kind of no regrets solutions, which includes restoring as much natural habitat as possible mm -hmm. across the world, protecting what's left across the world. You know, why wouldn't you want to do that anyway? Why wouldn't you want to have a green, greener economy with kind of greener jobs and things? Because it's got loads of upsides, which we want anyway. So let's just stop prevaricating and let's get on with it. Even if there's some uncertainty around, you know, the kind of minutiae of the science or whatever, at this point, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but that's where we come up against things like funding realities. And, okay. that's, and that's the thing. So are you pleased to see Rishi Sunak, for instance, yes. go to COP27? Yes. You know, why, why didn't he just say he was going in the first place? I mean, it's kind of, of course, the political situation in this country over the last month, six weeks, two months has been nuts you know, objectively, just the number of governments we've had and the reversals of, of, of you know, policies that we've seen or sort of U-turns, whatever the terminology is that they, they're using, um, you know, is, isn't what you want to see in a situation where we need good long-term clarity that enables people to invest in solutions and enables society to get to grips with the change that we now need to make. It's just not the right thing to be happening. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the Prime Minister should always have been going to, to the gathering at which Does it, the next steps are defined. I mean, clearly there's a, there's a, a fundamental difference of, of basic politics between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Mm -hmm. um, Liz Truss definitely wouldn't have been going. That, that seems to have been the, the I suspect music. so, yes. Um, so do you think that at the top level of government, they get it? The fact that fit changes have got to happen or not? I would have said before, say, six weeks ago, yes, they have got it. Now one wonders. But actually, I mean, it's, it's an apolitical you know, sort of issue, isn't it? Mm -hmm. if, if you, as an individual, believe that it's very likely that with the number of scientific brains that have put, been put around this globally, we're dealing with the issue we think we're dealing with, then you've just got to back it and you've got to you've got to work with it as a re real agenda and it becomes very very strange to have you know anyone like a climate denier or anyone kind of saying well we can ignore that put it to the side for the next 10 years while we promote you know massive growth overdoing these things 
in power. Um, that was a little bit scary seeing that. And, and, and of course, it does kind of indicate there is still a, a, a subset of society that basically wants to carry on with business as usual for all sorts of reasons, mm-hmm. but either they're burying their head in the sand, they find it a bit too scary, they don't understand it, or there's more money to be made in the short term by doing that, who still theoretically could get into power and you know, derail the agenda we now need. But the vast majority of people, I think, at least understand we've got to get to grips with this. And I mean, that I was, well, that's the key thing, <laughs> isn't it? That, that when you talk to people in business, hmm. uh, and I've been talking to a fair number of people over the last 18 months yeah. or so, quite senior people, yeah. I haven't met anybody yet who is at least publicly a climate no. change denier. Everybody in business that I'm talking to is basically saying, we know we've got to change. The question is, how do we do that? Yes. How do we put the support in place? Yeah. So it's going to kind of happen whether government likes it or not in lots of ways yeah. because enough. But there's a, a sort of a the tide has turned, isn't it? That's right. I think I think it has. So the last couple of weeks we've been involved in this thing called the Natural Capital Conference. I think they need to rename it because I don't think people use natural capital a lot in the kind of decision making circles or business circles at the moment. But net zero and you know the the the, the need to do things differently because of climate change mm-hmm. and increasingly actually because people are thinking that. Um, sort of walk of life, so decision makers say in business, are accepting, even if they can't do anything about it or don't know what to do about it, that the nature crisis is interlinked to the climate crisis aren't, as you say, at least publicly, you know, saying that there's anything to contest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is about how to do it. So they need strong, clear policy frameworks and they need a level playing field so they think that their competitors aren't going to steal a march on them by kind of a race to the bottom, you know, whilst there's still the space left to do things that aren't in line with that agenda. And that's where we need the consistency of policy. And I think if that happens, then particularly the private sector will just get going. And of course, the government needs it to because it hasn't got the money to do this on its own. No. So they have to make that happen. So what would you see as being like the one key plank that needs to be put in place to allow business to make the changes that it wants to? A carbon is, tax? Is there one key plank? I think I think there's lots of things that could make a difference. A carbon tax could be good. I mean, obviously, the devil with all these things is in the detail. How do you apply a carbon tax to whom, when, etc.? Um, I definitely think politically that would be a good move. Um, but I think the biggest thing, actually, is just to reaffirm that growth from now onwards has to be green growth. So, you know, that there is no other model. Um you know, if you want an energy supply to be improved, it has to be green energy in one form or another, mm-hmm. or at least greener energy than fossil fuels. Um, and, you know, absolute clarity that there's no more fossil fuels from now on in. I mean, that has to happen from an international perspective, because otherwise, how can we possibly expect other countries that haven't, you know, um, um, sort of exploited their their potential for getting more fossil fuels out, out, out of the ground? How can we expect them to put that aside if we carry on trying to eke out what's left in the North Sea. I saw a very interesting ad from Aramco on mm. uh, on my social media feeds the other day. Aramco being the Saudi Arabian company, if that's, if that's the right way of thinking of it. I think it's the biggest business in the world. It's worth literally trillions. Mm. And their ad was saying that they're using 30% less um, CO2 in manufacturing um, concrete, which I thought was great. 
but they are still pumping 10 million barrels of oil yeah. a day yeah. out of the ground over there. So, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a massive, massive argument to be won globally. Yes. The UK and Germany and mm-hmm. big swathes of America get it. Yeah. There's a big chunk of the world that really doesn't. On the other hand, you know, if you look at China, actually, you could say that they're actually taking action at a greater pace in some areas than, than we are. So I, I think it's, it's quite nuanced. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I say no more fossil fuels, I mean cu- countries like the UK that could probably do it now, mm-hmm. should be doing it right now. Realistically, looking across the piece, there is still going to be the use of fossil fuel for quite a long time. It's a transition. That's the whole terminology about just transition as well. So there's a north-south thing globally, which is going to be a massive piece of COP mm-hmm. you know, over the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, it's 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 really difficult for that reason to kind of boil it down into a single thing that needs to happen or whatever. But I think we have to lead the way, and we can lead the way. We should therefore have a, an economy which is pegged to being a green economy now. Um, yes, it's <laughs> there's 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 nested levels of complexity in all of these things. Right? Totally, totally. So you're in charge of the Kent Wildlife mm. Trust. <laughs> what business have you got in taking a global view of these things? You know, it's yeah. sort of like, is it this is all about badgers and hedgehogs, isn't it? Looking after that. The well, may, maybe it was. I don't think it should be. Mm. I think badgers and hedgehogs obviously are really important, um, you know, in their own right. But I think we're now at the stage where, you know, the future of things like hedgehogs is wrapped up into, you know, the future of our countryside and the future of our countryside is wrapped into exactly the stuff we were just talking about mm. because increasingly farmers need to be paid or landowners need to be paid for delivering what people call you know the public good so that might be locking up carbon uh, it might be um, sort of helping to make sure that flooding is reduced downstream all of those things actually are, are, are pegged to creating better habitats better ecosystems which will benefit the hedgehog and the badger and and many other species besides that we're not even aware of. Um, The other thing is all of those creatures now are being impacted by climate change anyway. Mm -hmm. So the first threat still just about maybe by some analyses uh, to most of the world's creatures and plants um, is from habitat loss. It has been historically to now. But kind of matched up to it and probably about to overtake it is climate change. So in the UK, look at what's happened with, you know, willow warblers, say, a bit of a, uh, when I grew up and, you know, a sort of a ubiquitous common bird you wouldn't have looked at, quite sort of boring looking for a non-birder, even for most birders, quite sort of green, black, small, you know, but a really nice song, which is why people used to sort of pick up on it. They do not breed in in the south of England anymore. They've moved north. The climate envelope for them has moved north. It's now too hot in the south. So, you know, they, they are sort of finding the, their best kind of breeding conditions. I mean, Scotland and the north of England. Um, all of these things are now where they, where they can, um, moving north. Mm-hmm. We're also losing loads of things without even knowing we, we, we're doing so because we don't monitor all the things we've got. And we're losing the associations between, say, a specific insect and a specific plant which enables that plant to be pollinated and to continue for future generations. And that's a, that's a kind of slower process. There's a lag in what we're seeing, but mm-hmm. all the data shows us that climate cha- change is now impacting all of our animals and plants substantially, and that will only get worse and more, more obvious as time goes on. Um, so 
from a wildlife trust perspective, you can't be ignoring climate change because it's the biggest thing that's impacting mm -hmm. our wildlife together with habitat. If you restore the habitat, you can actually help to deal with some of those issues around climate change, either actually kind of uh, producing local cooling, locking up carbon, providing habitat for you know animals to move through if they're going further north, new animals to come in from the continent. You know, without those kind of better, bigger, more joined up habitats, none of that's going to happen. So talking about habitats, and I remember when you became uh, CEO here, what, four years ago, five yeah, years ago? Not. Yeah. And you publicly announced that Kent Wildlife Trust was going to be all about rewilding mm -hmm. rather than just conservation. Mm -hmm. Wilding, not rewilding. Wilding. Important so, difference. Well, let's that <laughs> a little bit. Because... In some quarters, some people were really quite nervy about that and mm -hmm. worried that that was going to mean they were going to have lions and tigers and bears released into the countryside. And that, oh, my. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, not obviously those species. I mean, I guess, I guess rewilding for me, unfortunately, has got a bit of a tag which attaches it to wolves and things mm -hmm. like that in the UK. And, um, and that's not the reason I'm interested in, in rewilding. Um, I'm interested in putting back pieces of the kind of natural jigsaw so you've got a more dynamic, healthier um, assemblage of animals as a whole. And that lots of those key animals that we're missing actually do things like improve the habitat just by being there. So things like beavers, you call them keystone species. You know, mm -hmm. they engineer their habitat. I mean, we tend to call them ecosystem engineers. That's the reason we've got bisons back in and bisons? Why do they go by? Bison. Multiple bison. Bison. <laughs> yeah. no, I think definitely bison. <laughs> anyway, bison back in in, in, in the Bleen area uh -huh. because, you know, we as humans are really bad at engineering habitats for other species. And those species didn't evolve in most cases to take advantage of, of kind of our... Um, anthropogenically kind of altered landscapes, which have got worse and worse and worse over time anyway, as we've got more and more intensive with our land use, mm. etc. Mm. You know, they involve they evolved in the presence of these big animals or these animals that had a kind of a, a, a habit a habitat effect, like those beavers, and taking advantage of the opportunities that those those e ecosystem engineer species um, created for them, provided for them. So Wolves are an extreme example of where, you know, ultimately, if we ever had, say, you know, the, the vast tracts of, of Scotland that could be made wilder, sufficiently wild, then you could potentially, sometime in the future, look at using them for deer control. Yeah. Right? But in the southeast, that's not going to happen anytime soon. You know, we've got too many roads, the areas are too small, um, all the rest of it. But what we can do is we can put in these other species which actually make the habitats better. And in the context of climate change again, they'll make them more climate resilient, more adaptable. Uh, you know, they'll they'll help us to they'll help our wildlife to to cope with the changes which is come, which are coming our way. So we talk about that as wilding. It's not going backwards, rewilding to some kind of um, mythic point in the past where everything was you know perfect in the absence of humans. Mm. It's it's you know it's immaterial. Um, we are thinking about what makes for the best possible, most biologically diverse, biologically abundant, uh, dynamic system within the context of what we're working with now, mm -hmm. um, and, and and using that to kind of grow that habitat as well. So you mentioned the bison mm. in the Bleen, mm. just out 
it's just outside of Canterbury, isn't it? It's sort of mm. Hearn direction. Um, and I've been down there. I've seen the bison wandering in the woods. Mm. Is it as straightforward as just saying, "There's a bison, on you go," <laughs> leaving it at that? No. And, and one of the one of the points of that project, and many of the things that we're doing actually, is is to demonstrate um, what the problems are and how to overcome them. But also, in some cases, that we don't need half of the um, kind of legislative or, or, or actually physical barriers that that you know you you have to have to, to deal with now to put something like a bison back in Bison system. are regarded at the moment as a dangerous wild animal, aren't yes. they? Yeah. Um, and I'm presuming that they're as dangerous as a cow. So the Dangerous Wild Animals Act is a, a fairly old piece of legislation. I think it was the 1960s or so that it was, it was put together in. And they basically listed a bunch of big things that they thought might be a problem for people. Mm-hmm. And so those things include, you know, red deer, uh, boar, um, and and various zoo species. So you mentioned, you know, lions and tigers. Oh my, and and they're mm-hmm. on it as well. Mm-hmm. But so are bison. Um, so it kind of spans the kind of zoo world as well as the conservation world because it includes native species, formerly native species, and species species like bison that you know whether or not they were ever native. Don't get into that one. But would be a useful ecosystem engineer, and you know we find in Europe. Um, now, because they're on that list, theoretically, if we were to take, you know, uh, say, I don't know, Richmond Park, mm-hmm. and we would say we're going to put red deer into Richmond Park, then we wouldn't legally be allowed to have people wandering unsupervised through that red deer territory that we had created. So, now, so what you're saying is... enough, <laughs> right. if you go to Richmond Park... It's full of deer. You see a load of deer. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes those deer do actually gore people... Uh, and you know, injure them. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm saying that red deer or boar or bison aren't actually potentially dangerous, but you know, so are dogs, uh, so are domestic cattle. Mm-hmm. Um, people are pretty dangerous as well. You know, we don't have a dangerous world animals or humans act that kind of you know encompasses those species to the extent that you can't have unsupervised human access through areas where they may be. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you accept that there's an element of risk with so, a cow so, in a field. So essentially what you're saying is that with with the bison in the green woods, you, the hope would be that in 10 years' time, you can, you've can you got the evidence to say, seriously, guys, this is fine. Yes. Bison are fine. Don't worry about yeah. them. Which is exactly where they already are in Holland with them. Mm-hmm. So in Holland, you have a single-strand electric wire. And just like you would with if you've got a, a field of, with some horses in, um, and that's sufficient for the Dutch authorities to say that well, you know, the, the wild bison are one side and people are that side. And then you have a stile through which people can walk, mm-hmm. and there's a sign that says, "Be aware, there's bison in this landscape. Keep your distance." And that works for them. And that is literally just the other side of the channel. So that's it can where work there. It can work yeah. here. So, how did you get to be where you are personally today? Mm. What was your your route? Were you always a a wildlife conservationist, you know, is that was that your dream as a child? Um, kind of. My parents would say that I always thought about being a farmer, interestingly, and then I thought about being a vet, and I realised I had to work hard to be a vet, so that kind of went out the window. Um, I, um, both my parents are biology teachers. I, um, 16 years old, I kind of went abroad with people from the Natural History Museum to Central America and kind of worked slave labour for them. I then kind of went <laughs> off on expedition after 
uh, university, I set up an expedition. We went to the Solomon Islands and, and uh, looked for kind of rare bats and stuff. Um, I then worked at Fauna and Flora International for over a decade, uh, starting as effectively a volunteer working on policy stuff. Mm-hmm. I ended up running the Latin America and Caribbean program. Um, I then worked for another 10 years kind of globally as a kind of what they call biodiversity consultant specialist, whatever, mm-hmm. um, including for some outfits, you know, that you wouldn't imagine someone like me would necessarily work for. So Total, the oil company I worked right. for. So I've got kind of a, a fairly broad background, but it's rooted in ecology. It's rooted in enthusiasm and for actually know- trying to do something for the natural world. What? sparked that as a child? Was it the fact that your parents were biology teachers? Was it an atom well, I mean, they, 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 they told me not to do it for a start, so that, that <laughs> might actually be what drove me to do it. You know, that perverse kind of parent saying, don't yeah. do something, and then you think, right, sod it, I'm going to do as much of it as possible. Uh-huh. Um, I actually spent a day with David Attenborough at one point. I did blame him for the Life on Earth kind of like opening screen, which I do remember as a kid sitting on the sofa, I was allowed to stay up and watch that, and that you know iconic image coming across. Uh-huh. Um, he didn't accept blame for it, but you know it was partly his fault as well. Have you have you met him on multiple occasions? A few there? times, yeah. Uh, is it? Uh, I mean, I, I've been lucky mm. enough to meet him, and he's one of those people who um, they, they say don't meet your heroes. I would put him firmly in the category of the exception that proves the rule. He's an totally amazing agree. guy, isn't he? Yeah, totally agree. Um, uh, I think what's really impressive about him is he really does know his stuff, doesn't he? Mm. So I I spent. Uh, dinner talking to him about um uh, birds of paradise and you know he has got an incredible knowledge of birds of paradise but then i was with some some ape conservationists as well and of course he's known all of the kind of famous figures from ape conservation through the years so you know he can he he, he absolutely knows his subject inside out mm-hmm. so impressive and then of course he knows a load of stuff about other topics that you don't realize he's very very well, I mean, Very he's lived an extraordinary life, hasn't he? I mean, if, if there was ever a template on a life well lived, I think his yeah. is going to be up there. As somebody who worked in TV and has used it for good mm. and also introduced snooker to the television. <laughs> yeah, it's control on BBC. Python. So it's not a bad yeah, CV, no, is it? No. All in all, all yeah. in all. And having actually had the opportunity to go and see Birds of Paradise and Gorillas and you name it you know yeah. he's been, he's been on every continent he's seen probably as many species as anybody on earth ever has probably I, I think what's really interesting about him is that he um of course started off thinking that like w- along with the BBC that the function of the BBC was mostly about entertainment and that it didn't it couldn't stray too far into education and initially he was quite reluctant to speak out on some of the environmental issues because of that stance, you know, it was about uh, hooking people in, mm-hmm. as it did with me and loads of others, right? And then it, he has so obviously kind of gone on that personal journey to decide he's going to use his, you know, authority around this stuff to, to try and actually get people to take action. Um, so he's a role model from that perspective as well, I think. You've got kids, haven't you? Mm. Um, are you worried about how they view their futures? Um, yes. I mean, they're both a bit young to be kind of fully cognizant of what is now likely to be upon them in their lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but my um, eldest is 11 and he's beginning to sort of get concerned about, you know, various things that he sees. He, he um, 
uh, he wants to take action himself, you know, um, and I think that generation absolutely should. Um, I think one of the great things that we have seen over the last few years is, you know, kind of that movement of young people demanding action. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do feel very strongly that, that you know, there is a generational issue here, generational kind of justice issue, um, actually just around things like having access to high quality nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the, the kind of shifting baseline thing that people don't realise what they've lost. And if you go back and talk to, to older people about what they saw in their countryside, you know, they used to see loads more wildlife than we did. We used to see loads more than our kids are going to see. Um, and because they're going up that, thinking that the environment we're there in now is normal. Yeah. And that's your, the shifting baseline is that their normality exactly. is actually degraded from what it was 50 years ago. Yes. Yeah. And our baseline from 50 years ago is massively degraded from what it was Precisely. 200 years ago. Yeah. And I think that, that becomes a problem in itself because you don't know what you could have and how rich that would make your life. And that kind of dislocation from nature, which is happening anyway because of more urbanised populations and things like that. On top of that, potentially does make us quite vulnerable, you know, as, as, as a species, if you like, thinking that we are isolated from these things which are, are going on to the world around us and how they're going to affect us or not. Um, and I think one of the things about climate change as a cut through is I think people generally... Um, in the younger generations, the evidence suggests are really concerned about it, do want action on it. And through taking that action, actually, it could create a richer world in wildlife, which will then be beneficial to them as well, even though they don't realise what you know they're missing. So the thing you mentioned earlier mm. on, natural capital. Mm. What is natural capital? Because, as you say, people don't necessarily understand what it mm. is. Anything with capital in, people will assume has got something to do with capitalism. Yeah. Um, so natural capital is what? So I think it's a pretty antiquated term, but it is exactly that concept. So people thought, um, and this was probably, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe even more years ago, um, how do we get people to realise that nature should have a value and therefore the term capital is exactly what you were just saying. It's It's... You know, let's use the kind of language of economics and and put a value on nature. Now, I, I personally don't have. There are people who who will tell you that they are kind of philosophically opposed to that. That it should all be about nature's inherent value. I think the cold reality of it is that that has never prevented the catastrophic declines in nature we've seen globally, or you know, the economic system taking huge advantage of natural resources on which it has relied for mm. growth. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that there does need to be a different language. But I think what's coming through because of these kind of, um, you know, uh, um, really profound um, challenges to um, our existence, if you want to look at it that way, mm. is, is, is a different language around nature-based solutions or natural climate solutions, things like that. It's... It, it's the fact that nature itself, you don't have to have all that kind of um, accounting spreadsheet, you know, X species is worth X or X habitat is worth X, which has never really worked from a, from a natural capital accounting perspective. But you can say that actually, if you've got a healthy system, it delivers, you know, clean cleaner water, reduces flood risk, gives us, you know, greater resistance against drought, 
um, and locks up carbon. That's a, that's the solution, or you know, it means that we've got pollinators, which means we've got food. That's part of the solution that nature provides to us. Without that kind of you know um, unnecessary, not very helpful, and in, inaccurate minutiae underneath it, mm-hmm. that is much more powerful because a company can invest in that, you know. And how how would they invest in that? You know, because you're talking about actually effectively selling carbon credits, mm. um, which are woodland in Kent. Yes. So, um, I mean, the, the, all of the marketplaces for this are, are, you know, kind of evolving now. But you've got, for example, I'll, I'll not do carbon first, I'll do water. So you've got water companies that um, they need to find a way to, to improve the water quality. Um, and they can either basically do it through pouring concrete and, you know, uh, uh, putting together engineered solutions, or they can use a wetland. Mm-hmm. And you can start to quantify how much it's going to cost them to do each of those and what benefits you're going to get in terms of the water quality. And in many cases, it's going to be cheaper for them to do the wetland than pour the concrete. And of course, in a situation where you've got also these companies looking at their own net zero needs, Mm -hmm. and many of them also wanting to achieve an uplift in the biodiversity as well, you get all those co-benefits you know, relating to your wetland, if you put wetland in, you get none of them if you do your engineered solution. Right, okay. So that nature-based solution is becoming increasingly attractive for multiple reasons. And another reason it can be attractive is because if you put in the right habitats, they can also either actually soak up carbon from the atmosphere into vegetation and soil, or they can, in some cases, so peat is a great example of this, by restoring it, you stop it emitting so much carbon into the atmosphere by making it wetter. It, it, it doesn't necessarily suck up the carbon immediately, but it does stop emitting that, that CO2. And at a stage when obviously we need that lack of emissions, if you like, yeah. that's really important. So in 50 years' time, mm. once you know your work is done mm. and you've sorted the problems out, mm. what's Kent going to look like? Well, I mean, in 50 years' time, I suspect I won't be here <laughs> since I'm turning 50 this month. Um, that would be well, you never that know. would be, that would be really good going. Hopefully, it? the kids will. Um, <laughs> yes, I would like to. Well, I think if, so. so there's a, a movement at the moment which is, you know, it got very strong underpinning sort of scientifically that says we need to have 30 to 50 percent of the globe as you know intact ecosystems providing all these services to the rest of the the earth. Right. Mm-hmm. So. You know, that includes things like the Amazon maybe still actually existing in 20 to 50 years' time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 10 years' time would be good. Now mm-hmm. that Bolsonaro is no longer in, maybe that's possible. Um, and in Kent, you know, that should mean, because it should really be applied at all scales everywhere across the earth, you know, 30% of Kent, at least, is in really good ecological condition, which what, to me means... what does means, that mean? Because a lot of it is farmland. 90-odd yeah. percent of it is farmland at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, but you've got 30% already of the county is areas of outstanding natural beauty. Um, uh, you've got a lot of the soils in Kent are not particularly good for farming. Anyway, you've got quite a lot of uh, marginal, very kind of heavy clay soils in the low weald. Um, there are areas, even in this county, even in the southeast, where actually it would be better to pay landowners for those environmental services to be part of that 30%. And that doesn't necessarily mean they can't do anything else on that land. I mean, there are systems where, you know, you can have agroforestry systems, 
where you've got you know your trees locking up your carbon and you're doing other things um, so in terms of productive use between those and trees. And are farmers on board with that as a concept? Quite a lot of them are, are getting there but they need to see the the you know the payments now happening. Um, you know I think the the the, the rea reality of it is that we need to keep as many people on the land as possible so we've got to give them a fair price for doing things that actually benefit society. They're not going to get propped up in many cases in the way they have been through subsidies anyway. So some of their farming farming activities that they've been running for years are already marginal mm -hmm. and they're already looking for better ways to do things. And also in many cases, you know, food production, they know, um, again, with the cost of, of fuel, etc. rising, needs to be based upon doing things in a more sustainable way possible. So again, it doesn't have to be that you leave these areas to go completely fallow all the time, but you, you know, we have to transform the way that we, we farm. The marginal areas, you know, can be effectively uh, let to, to, you know, become wilder. And that, that does deliver a service which could be paid for. Um, because there are some... It would be a much, much richer area for wildlife either way. There are uh, people who are deeply concerned that modern farming, mm. intensive farming, has fed the world... And therefore, if we go down the route of allowing hedgerows to be thicker and to, mm -hmm. you know, that we're not going to have enough food to feed everybody. Mm. Do you buy that? Not really, no. I mean, for, for a start, that, that sort of suggests that, that um, you know, we've reached some kind of apex in, in our kind of knowledge uh, and systems for food production, which is blatantly untrue. I mean, you know, uh, particularly at a time when there are all sorts of transformations due to the way people want to eat and the diets they want to pursue, which is going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's discussions about vertical farming, where food would be produced on the edge of cities or, you know, in cities in basically kind of labs grown mm -hmm. upwards, including protein. All that stuff is happening already. There is an element of farming which is going to be transformed by these technologies. So this is kind of like growing lettuces basically in tower blocks and that kind of thing under yeah. magic lights and and, and, and... and eventually probably, you know, meat substitutes as well, mm -hmm. uh, which is already happening in some areas. Very expensive, but the costs will come down. So there's going to be a transformation in, in, in food production anyway, and it might be less heavily kind of land-based. Mm -hmm. um, but... At the same time, you know, the, 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 there's a huge movement in farming towards regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even if you're, in, you're doing kind of standard, if you like, traditional cropping, that can be done in much better ways that have uh, lower inputs, um, but actually achieve as much um, profit um, by putting in less. And, and a lot of farmers got, got kind of locked into this um, sort of high input to achieve high yield model mm. and and there are so many instances and cases in, uh, within the farming community of farmers themselves saying this is just not true and effectively you know we've been locked into a dependency almost like a drug dependency on the chemicals that, that then cause all of these problems so so all of these things are going going to change anyway. I'm I'm pretty sure it's it's a kind of a start, and and that doesn't even take into account the fact that you know we've got massive food waste. You, you if you deal with the food waste, you don't even need a, a substantial percentage of the land that we are currently using for food. Eat what you've grown in the first place, and that would be a useful thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you're quite a pragmatic person, aren't you? In the way that you have conversations with with business people mm. and. And I keep sort of rephrasing the same question in different ways. And uh, often, your experience is that they get it now. 
that the, the, the shift is starting to happen. Um, there are people who are still concerned about the mechanics of that yeah. and still concerned about the uh the the kind of the, the way that you subsidize it or the way that you make sure you can still make a living out yeah. of it but in your opinion the majority of people you're talking to are actually starting to try and make those changes yeah i mean obviously you've always got to be careful that you're not confirming your own bias in terms of the fact i talk to a subset of of people in all walks of life who probably have a predilection towards the sort of things that I'm talking about anyway, just because the forums that I meet them in. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that's a very, very large slice of people now. I think obviously it's really difficult for businesses to move without this certainty we talked about on a number of levels. Um, it's not easy during the economic times that we've currently you know, found ourselves in. Mm. Um, but I think that for a very large slice of them, they know what needs to be done. It's just how do they do it best? Um, uh, and, and of course, there are industries where that kind of transition to a, you know, a lower carbon form of, uh, of producing what they do is going to be more difficult than others mm -hmm. because they're more energy intensive or, you know, whatever. So there are going to be there are going to be different paces that they're going to be limited to, even if they're trying their hardest. But generally, my feeling is that we've turned a bit of a corner. So let's, let's sort of wrap things up a little mm. bit then. And that's a good kind of final thought. Given where we were when you took over five years ago, mm. and given the fact that we also know that carbon reductions overall around the world haven't mm -hmm. started going down yet. Yep. They have gone down in the UK, but they haven't gone down mm. globally yet. How are you feeling in comparison to how you were feeling five years ago? Um, well, because the work we've been doing here i feel optimistic that we do have some key tools available to us now to really get things going at pace so the work we've been doing uh here creating these um what we call wilder carbon standards which is about a standard for doing um natural climate solution work in the best possible way for nature and climate tackling both of those crises at the same time given the limited you know, land available to us and given the limited time we have available to us is a kind of catalytic action which has been welcomed by many that we have talked to. And there are numerous other initiatives of that sort going on in, mm. in, you know, in, in parallel um, bits of the puzzle. Um, so I, I, again, I'm, I am optimistic. So if you get the chance to have a sit down, have a conversation like we're doing mm. now with Rishi Sunak and Keir Sarmer and you know, all the other political leaders, what's the one thing you want them to understand and to actually start making happen? Um, I think it is about backing these kind of industries of the future, if you like, you know, um, and creating the policy frameworks to support them. So things like the tax, re tax regime have to work alongside these these green growth mechanisms you know you can't be penalizing farmers in terms of you know their their inheritance tax status for taking land out of of um, commission um, to produce these other goods that we now need them to produce for for you know society so food production has to be given you know um or rather carbon production has to be given the same status as food production mm -hmm. and 
taxation can't penalise people who are taking marginal land, which never really worked for food production, and turning it into something that you know produces the carbon or the water quality goods. So um, it's a re- basic regulation in place to protect the environment and to actually allow people to earn money out of protecting the environment. Yeah, it is. It is basically making sure that, um, as I say, all of these these mechanisms we now have are actually supported by mainstream policy around you know, finance and um, the legal structures we're all working to, going back to that, to that point about dangerous wild animals mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if we, if we want to have these large areas which are providing all these services, then the best way to, the only way to manage them is actually to have more intact kind of assemblages of animals. And you can't do that if you've got these, you know, antiquated legal frameworks you're wrestling with, which make it far too expensive to scale. Well, it's been fascinating having a conversation, Evan. Anytime, Rob. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. And I'm, I, I'm heartened that you're optimistic. You're on the front line. You're looking at the stuff. You're mm. concerned about how things could go. And yet you're still optimistic. Yeah. So that has to, that's a very heartening thing to hear. Well, I'm glad you think it is too. <laughs> so there we have it. Evan Bowen-Jones. Lovely chap, really knowledgeable on his subject and a powerful advocate for his cause. If you want to know more about Kent Wildlife Trust and the work they do, then go to kentwildlifetrust.org.uk. You can find out more about the wild bison on the website as well and their release into the Kent countryside. Just search for Wilderbleen. That's B-L-E-A-N. Lots of excellent coverage on there of their recent, uh, slightly unexpected baby bison calf. Unexpected because they released three females into the woods and didn't know that one was already expecting. A bonus bison. Anyway, there we go. Uh, If you want to get in touch with me, then you can always email me, robsmith at wildrovermedia.com. I'll include the links in the description. And in the meantime, until the next time, look after yourself. All the best. (laughs) 